Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. In The Lead this week, I'm speaking to Selma Debar, a British-Palestinian fiction writer who lives in London. Her first novel, Out of It, published in 2011, follows the lives of Palestinian siblings in Gaza, London, and the Gulf in the midst of occupation, religious fundamentalism, and political divisions. In 2021, Selma edited the collection We Wrote in Symbols, Love and Lust by Arab Women Writers, an anthology of poetry, short stories, novel excerpts, and letters written by a wide range of Arab women writers, ranging from pre-Islamic to contemporary writing, covering longing, betrayal, sex, love, and relationships. Salma is currently completing a PhD in creative writing at Goldsmiths University and finalising a novel set in Jerusalem in 1936. Salma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lydia. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me to New Lines. Well, I want to start by congratulating you. We Wrote in Symbols is a phenomenal book. Each voice you've included is captivating, yet they vary hugely in register, style and content. I'd like to illustrate that by reading two poems that you've placed opposite each other in the book. The first is by the 8th century poet Ulayya bint Mahdi, who was sister of the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid, who of course is forever famous for commissioning A Thousand and One Nights. Her poem included here is Give My Greetings. Give my greetings to this book, swaying and say, you are the lock of the hearts of men. You left my body exposed in the morning sun while you resided in the shade with doves. You have reached a place within me that I cannot handle. Now, on the facing page, you've placed a poem by Sharuk Amin, a contemporary Kuwaiti mixed media interdisciplinary artist and her poem is called Time and Secrets, Girl with a Box. Seed-rich box carry my secret pulp scraped, virginity pressed like a new flower between old pages. Cloudy blue, behind me, moon glowing. Shaft cut, scandal stained, Cretaceous white, carry my hymen's secret of scabrous secret of one more protean woman, re-virginized. Now these clearly speak to each other in the radical openness they share in talking of sexual relationships, even though they are separated from each other by a gulf of time and distance and social norms. How did you begin to do the research <laughs> to discover such a wide range of voices? Was it collaborative in any way? Well, I mean, thank you. I, it also very interesting you chose those two poems. I think they work very well together. And um, was it collaborative in any way? And where did it begin? I mean, it was very collaborative and it began a long time ago. I mean, I think you could say from the, from the time that I started reading work by Arab women writers or I started reading fiction, which is, you know, see, since forever. But I think uh, for this collection, my interest was really in looking at how these voices had had changed over time and was i think if i was going to time 
timestamp that, that would be 2000 and, you know, probably 2000 around six, when I first read the classical poems by Arab women, because, which was also published by Saki, but that for me was a complete revelation in terms of the number of women writers going back to the pre-Islamic era and and afterwards, and also just the way that they express themselves about love and sexuality. And there seemed to be something so modern and pithy and frank and and refreshing about their voices. Um, and I, I, for, for, I grew up a lot in, in the Arab world, in, in Kuwait. I actually went to the same school as Sharuk Amin for, for a while. Um, and we, we were taught Arabic and Islamic studies in a way that made it feel like it was nothing to do with the lives that we were actually living or the yearnings we had about life or anything to do with sexual or romantic freedom. It was just seen as something of, of constraint and restriction in terms of the way it was taught to us. So for me, those classical poems opened up a whole dimension to my Arab heritage that I found really um, liberating. And then I was on a process of inquiry with, um, I had met a lot of Arab women writers through being on the sort of book, um, you know, the novel writing panel, you know, being placed on panels with them. A lot of them had become my friends. I'd read other pieces of pe people's work. So those people, I, I knew that they'd touched on these subjects in different way. They were very varied in their styles. And I wanted to bring, there were some people I really wanted to bring together from the beginning, for example, Ahtaf Swayf. Um, because her book, I Have the Sun, was so incredibly profound in its influence on me. I read it when I was living in Egypt. So there were these pieces like that. And then from that, um, there would be, there were translators I connected with, academics, uh, academic papers that I read, which linked me on to different researchers. And um, so it's very, very diverse. I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on how much it varies hugely. That was my one main, main guiding principle to keep it as varied and heterogeneous as possible. No, that's very clear. Um, yeah, even on the most cursory of, of looks, I think it's very clear how much it varies and that's, and that's the richness of it. Um, but of course, what else is very clear from the start um, is the amount of very explicit erotic writing. And here I'm thinking of Nejma, a pseudonym mm. for a contemporary writer living in the Maghreb. Yeah, her description of sex from her book, The Almond. I mean, it manages to be tender as well as erotic, but the few pages you've chosen are extremely graphic. The, the detail, mm. you know, it's very raw, isn't it? And, and repeated sex. Um, and mm. there's also... Mana Haddad, the Lebanese writer, uh, you've included her account of a trip to a swingers club in Paris with, you know, all kind of all, all types of sexual fetishes and experiences on display. And, mm. and, and my question is, how much was the erotic part of your intention from the start? Um, it was uh, an intention from the start. And I'd had actually, um, Nershma's work when it came out was quite controversial. I, she's one of, I think, the only writer in the collection. I have no idea about her identity, where, she, where her whereabouts. I haven't had any direct contact with her. Um, and her book was a big bestseller when it came out. Um, I, I thought that that passage, I mean, it is, yes, it is very sexual, but it's also very tender and it's it's but as you say and it um 
and it it just it sort of justifies the graphic nature by the amount of emotion connected around it. I mean, it wasn't. I didn't feel it was gratuitous. In terms of how much in the beginning we were thinking of having a subtitle which was lust and erotica, but actually the term erotica is quite problematic because it although you think it's writing on the erotic, it's really the intention is often just writing to titillate the reader and often writing which is more aimed at the male gaze so to speak so we didn't really want and the quality of it that sort of genre is normally it's not very good it's um and it it it's it's a very niche genre even for women for women anywhere i mean the woman who is most famous for this kind of writing is anias nin um and she's having a little bit of a a revival now in terms of people saying okay you know she, she was actually a very serious writer on socioeconomic issues but everybody because she wrote this very sexual material as a woman in the 20s she's just been seen as being a sexy writer it, it, it's a label which attaches to female writers in a way that can damn them so we decided to move away from the erotica because i it, it didn't fit titillation was not our aim it was how writers sort of navigate these very complex human emotions and bodily um, longings. And so we moved towards um, love and lust because there was just so much love coming through. And I think this connection, which is something I say in the beginning of the, um, um, in the introduction, this sort of connection between love and sex is just it never seems it never seems to be far away in in women's writing i know that's a it's quite a big generalization but i found that the two things were sort of married more closely than perhaps um in yeah. other in other forms which deal with sex yeah. so you were kind of making the point that women can appreciate and think about sex um on their own terms somehow trying to make a little bit of space for that to be recognized because i think that um, I mean, on one level, because you just were in a, you know, in cultures globally, new global cultures, which have a lot of sexual content, which is streamlined, you know, which is downloaded everywhere, which is really quite mostly, you know, for catering for the male uh, viewer and with a kind of uh, often with a pornographic content, which knocks out the the romantic the the more subtle and the the feelings of women in it so i mean this is something which is it's not it's not just something to do with arab women but there are movements to sort of looking at how women can express themselves in this way and i know that for example there are swedish sort of female filmmakers who want to make films about you know sexy films for women trying to see that there's a, a difference in in how that what might work for them etc but this was yeah, this was an investigation, but it was also a way of trying to, which perhaps is a different point, maybe it's something that we'll talk about separately, but there's a way of showcasing women writing about things which are very personal, rather than a lot of writing from the Arab world, it's, there's quite an expectation that it should be more political, more in the public sphere. So I just wanted to pull back to the most sort of core elements and see how that can be explored because it takes so much skill to be able to do that well. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd love to pick up on that, but just to return, I mean, we do, Swedish filmmakers and, and Arab writers alike, all, all of us live within 
quite a patriarchal, misogynistic um, culture still. Um, and so I do feel with the weight of literary tradition that we're all working in, there is the danger always of falling into the male gaze, whatever gender of writer you are. And I, I wonder, you know, perhaps that's even more true for Arab women writing, writing within Middle Eastern cultures. I'm not sure. I mean, is this something that you are consciously aware of? Very much so. I mean, from the outset, it's it was this very problematic thing. And I think some of the criticism leveled against some of the women writers in this collection. So I would say Najma, perhaps a bit also with Salwa Sel al-Naimi, who was really groundbreaking in her time, probably also Rita al-Khayat, a Moroccan woman who um, is said to have written the first erotic novel. This idea that, oh, you're just trying to sort of, you know, orientalize the Arab woman for the Western readership. And that's, you know, you're just adding to this very um, oppressive um, tradition in terms of how we're seen and how women are seen and how we're objectified. So we we wanted to find a way of trying to, one of the reasons I went to Al-Sarki was I felt that they were somebody who, who was very sensitive to these, to these debates and to see a way around it because, okay, there, there, um, you have, you have other writers who are trying to sort of deal with these personal issues and they're not dealing with it in order to titillate, they're dealing with it in order to express themselves and to add emotional movement to their to their storylines. Um, and so how can we how can we make a space for them to do that without it being seen to be problematic in that way? So part of the idea was to just make it a, a, a broader range of voices and, and all very literary. It's not something, uh, and the way that we, we've, um, the cover was designed, the way that it was um, placed. And it was, I wanted to get somehow um, a feeling of intimacy with it, which was somewhere between a harem and a, and a book club. You know, the idea of, you know, because I've always been part of book clubs and it's like that's something that women often end up talking about within these spaces. And so it was a way of communicating about the body across cultures, across the era, uh, you know, because we're also very different in terms of how we feel about these things. Um, and it was a different, yeah, I don't know. If that completely answered your question, so please do. <laughs> to be honest, it just brings lots more, which is great. I mean, <laughs> I have to say that was going to be one of my questions um, about um, a potential exoticization, because especially when you tie um, how much explicit material there is um, to to the title, because you do explicitly say by Arab women writers. Now, Arab mm. is always a contentious category mm. from from many different. People have argued about Arab, mm. but but mm. here, where the original language of, of some of these pieces is not actually Arabic, some were written in English or French, um, mm. there is even more ambiguity mm. because if the identity isn't around language, you're applying you're implying that there's um, a, another basis for for the category of Arab, such as ethnicity or culture or, or something like that. And I thought that that choice did run the risk of exoticizing mm. Arab women through, you know, in a way that yeah. the West has been fetishizing the Orient for centuries. Mm. 
Right. Well, I mean, it's, you know, anything that is is published on this subject is going to run the risk of um, falling foul of some sensitivities. I wanted the grouping because it's more as a sort of self-identification. It was kind of a bit of a personal exploration for me. Um, and I, I have a lot of hybrid writers yeah. in it um who are between europe and and the arab world so i think it was perhaps for me it was my identification with what does it mean to be as an arab woman how has this sort of side of me been influenced because it's far more liberating for me to have read something like Ahdaf Suwaif, which has some quite sexual content in it, uh, than to have read that coming from a French or an American woman, because I just didn't, I just felt that it's 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 a kind of a way of um, addressing your body that is perhaps a little, was a bit distant to me. I can't quite... It's, it's quite difficult to explain it subtly without falling into gross generalizations. But I I think that I just gravitated towards it because it's sort of like, you know, your people who feeling that these writers are sort of coming with some of the same constraints and ideas of of of, of shame and tra transgression that yeah. perhaps I grew up with, that it makes it very interesting for me because it's like that kind of, it's the empowerment and the idea of bravery and the idea of like developing your style around the subject matter and there are some pieces which are very provocative and they're very in your face and they're very um I found it quite difficult editing because I'm I'm quite um I mean it's just you know it's a lot of very sexual language and you sometimes wake up after you know looking at pieces very closely and you're in them and then you come out in the morning and you see them all together in a you know and you think oh my god there's just just so many um so much genitalia here I can't really handle it but um but you 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 kind of uh but some of the provocative voices I find interesting because I do think that that's something to do with um if you if you live it's like children who have very strict parents are often the most rebellious. You know, if you're living under a, a prohibition that you can't do things, that sometimes you often get these voices coming through saying that, you know, where they're completely, you know, resigned to shocking and, and resisting everything because they don't accept the, 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 the curtailments that they have to live under. So I, what, I felt it was important to yeah. include those. Have you um, had any pushback yeah. from this aspect? Anyone overly shocked by the fact that women enjoy sex? No, I mean we've I mean we've also really placed it quite uh we didn't sort of place it in a way that we wanted to invoke a huge amount of scandal or to kind of frontline those that those aspects of it. Um but do have we had shock in terms of no, I think we've I think we've moved on from there. Um, and we, I haven't had, I think the response, I've been really pleased. I think the response has been very positive generally and mainly from women in terms of the issue of the, the male gaze. But can I can just revert to this point about Orientalism because it's something I sort of struggle over. And I think that you have this issue like, I mean, post, you know, post Saeed, we're all like very sensitive about, um, how how this region has been 
portrayed and portrayals of it. But within, within these portrayals, there are kernels of truth. And it's particularly around issues of sexuality, which where there's been a lot of distortion. And, and it's like somehow you have to, this was an attempt in a way to strip off the that kind of gaze and just get into the these, you know, to get back to these old poems and to get them to a broader audience. And um, you know, to Yeah. That was part of it. And to sort of, you know, just shake up some of the stereotypes because I mean to go back to book clubs I'm in one in London and it's just it's so hard to get anyone to read anything from the Arab world and I've even had any literary fiction I've even had um, journalists saying to me look every who, who specialize on this subject saying that western readers will just tell them look it's too depressing it's it's not something not somewhere I want to go so I was trying to just see okay let's because these women are so incredible in, in this collection. I feel just that I'm as proud of the biographies as I am of the works because they're all doing like so many different jobs, speak so many different languages, a lot of the modern contemporary ones. Some of them have been, you know, have gone on trial for their writing. Other ones have been banned. They've had all kinds of different pushbacks and they're sort of prepared to be quite, to stand, to stand with their convictions. And I think that they just, they're a kind of, I don't know, they're just role models in, in a funny way. A lot they do, they, they come across as incredibly strong and very powerful, clear voices. So you've definitely achieved that. They're, they're, they do come across as role models, I'd say. Um, but thinking about what you just said about it's a struggle to get people to to read voices coming out of the Arab world. Did you have an imagined or, or an intended audience for the book? And did that change at all over the course of putting the anthology together? Yeah, I think this question of who you write for, it's so um, interesting, particularly with bigger projects, because your writing it does change. You know, you can be writing a novel for seven I don't know, you can spend years on a novel and at certain points there'll be chapters where you're really thinking of one person that you're writing it for or, and sometimes you come back and you reread it and you think, what if somebody of this ethnicity or political persuasion was to read it, what would they think? And then you have to revisit with it with that in light. In the beginning, I just wrote it for women who I would say are, are kind of like me, are like sort of straddling between the two cultures and don't, um, and are just interested in knowing more about other women in this kind of grouping or their writing. Um, and then just to try to, I was hoping that it would, enable there to be more interest in the writers themselves and the rest of their work that's why there are so many of the contemporary ones in it um to just yeah. sort of showcase them in terms of the the delicacy of their work and i it was quite interesting during the process of it because some of the writers um who i commissioned pieces from they had stories that they hadn't really shown anyone before and it was I kind of felt that they had this private side to their writing um, which was kept away and some of their public side it was all they would write as Egyptian writers or Syrian writers or Palestinian writers often expecting when they're translated into English that it's just going to be I'm going to have to explain my country my situation my 
to this readership, you know, that there's a national responsibility almost, and that these private writings were more, I don't know, more personal, more a little raw sometimes, and quite freeing for them to be able to know that they were interested as people, not just as spokespeople and writers, as writers. You gave them, just from the, just from the very project itself, you gave them a certain space that they didn't have before. Mm. Is that what you said? Yeah, some of them, some of them. I mean, a lot of the work is pre-published, but yeah. uh, some of them, some of it was new or had never been published in English before. And also the other thing, to just t- turn this around a little bit, is I was, um, or in terms of this issue of perceptions of Arab women uh, in a sort of sexualized way, someone also passed me, Marsha Links-Qualey, who, who's, who curates Arab Lit, you probably know, she wrote an article which was looking at how translators, when dealing with sexual writing, I don't know if you've come across this, but dealing with sexual writing from the Arab world, from Arab women, will often make it more prudish than the original. Actually, we published that essay on New Life. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we had Russia on the podcast. So thank you for tying these these issues together. Yeah, yes, funny. well, that was that was exactly what was interesting me, is like, let them speak in their own way. So we were dealing very sensitively. Ah, oh, I think you actually sent the article to Marina Warner, who sent it to me. I think that was the link. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, yes. I'm glad that our essays are hitting their mark. That's wonderful. They are, but it so it was like we we really dealt very carefully with. I I mean I've got such a huge new respect for translators um, since doing this project in terms of the care that they take over every single word and the way that they that they act as um, sort of cultural gateways. Well. I was astonished by by that actually the I mean some translators pop up in a few different places don't they um in in the anthology translating different things but there there is a huge range of names in the translators um that you're drawing on um and I I I just got the sense I mean all translation is hard and we've had a podcast with Marsha um about this um and, and all translation is a choice at the end of the day there's 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 no right or wrong way of doing this it's very personal but that's even more so in something like sex and it's even mm-hmm. more so when the language that's being used is so vernacular you know where the choice of words is laden with 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 social cultural and often taboo implications mm. it's it's just an astonishingly difficult task isn't it I mean did, did you get a sense did you learn anything about translation in reading the hugely varied material that that's been translated here I did um a lot a huge amount and also just one point on how difficult it is for me as an editor some of the pieces were coming in in French and my French is okay you know I can get the gist of uh, of what they were writing about when it came back in the translation it was kind of sometimes like oh my god this is like really explicit <laughs> this is, or it's or it's written in a tone or that there was a nuance I hadn't really seen that it was there so that was also quite quite interesting in terms of how how that act of translation um really shifted it somewhat more. um the um two things I learned about translation one is just um how, how what incredible ventriloquists 
um, a good translator can be. You know, in terms of capturing the voice, it's like, you know, you have actors who can only, you feel that they can only kind of play one part, which is a variation of themselves. And there are other actors who can be completely transformed. So perhaps that sense of a strong self is, is lesser, but they can slip into the body of, of the part that they're playing. And I think with some of the translators had that extraordinary range of style um, uh, into, from, from doing very modern pieces um, in a very, you know, very sort of edgy beat style way. Um, and then doing very drifty pieces, uh, or not drifty, sorry, more ethereal romantic pieces and, and taking on a completely different uh, voice and vocabulary. Yeah, I'm endlessly impressed by all translators, to be honest. Um, but <laughs> in this case, yeah, it's particularly tricky. Particularly mm. tricky. And also, I think to just highlight like the work of translators, like someone like Alice Guthrie in this, who's uh -huh. who single-handedly has gone through this act of literary recovery of the work mm. of Malika Masudroff and learning the Dirija, um, you know, di dialect and and just being lovingly putting together the works of, of, of a writer who, had she lived, would be about my age, but sadly died at the age of about 36. Oh, definitely. Translators really are important in that kind of work as well, which takes us back to the intended audience, you know, and and popularisation and, and all the rest of it. Um, and, and yeah, anthologising is another piece of that work, I would say, of introducing authors to new audiences in other in other packages, other ways. Um, <clears throat> but I and I wondered about that anthologizing because it wasn't just the 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 research you had to do, but also the selection. I'm guessing you left out a lot. Did. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, what what was the well? What was the inclusion criteria then? Um, so I I probably left out nearly as much as I included in the end, and there is there is a lot in here. Um, so sometimes I had more pieces by the same author or longer pieces and I just had to slim slim it down to, to, le to less by one person. Um, so the selection criteria was basically uh, quality, is it on topic? And then there was this other idea which we had coming through is we wanted them really to be upbeat. We wanted them to be a bit celebratory. We didn't want uh, pieces which were sort of saying, uh, you know, um, too many pieces which sounded too broken in terms of the narrator or repressed. We wanted a sense of defiance and and a kind of resistance and a playfulness and a kind of like how can we you know that uh, relishing the ingenuity of of the, themselves and and this aspect of living. Yeah. Well, that defiance actually links back to a point you made earlier that I wanted to pick up on, which. You said that Arab writers are often expected to deal with the political rather than mm. the personal. Mm. They're supposed to represent their regional struggle or whatever it is. Uh, but the Arab region is still very conservative in many mm. ways. And so writing about these taboo subjects is a subversive act. Would you agree? Yeah, no, it is. And myself and probably a lot of these writers are. I would say that that is something we're sort of engaged in, in a way, but it's um, it's a question of whether you accept things as they are or you try to push for a slightly different vision of life, you know, of the world. And well, of yeah. 
and you, you definitely do present many different visions of life in this anthology. I, I really respect the range of it all. So, so well done. And I wondered if you could finish up by actually presenting something else to us from the anthology. Could you read something? Yes. Um, yes, I can. I'm going to read a little bit by, just because I'm, I'm working a lot on Palestine at the moment, and I, I think I'd like to read the piece by Adonia Shibley. Just, I'll just read a page of it because it's an example of prose. Adonia is um, one of Palestine's most celebrated writers. She's really, I think she's brilliant. She's very, she's master of the short form and the novella. Her minor detail was um, shortlisted for the International uh, Booker recently, and she's great. So I'm gonna read this bit, it's called Without Rhyme. They had just made love when he said, love maker. She waited a moment, enough to regain a little confidence, then said, love maker, not lover. And, and in a strong, clear voice, he replied, eyeing her dim figure on the sofa, if you like. He was still holding the tissue he had used to wipe himself a minute before. Then he repeated, love maker. And she repeated after him, love maker. And he smiled and she smiled after him. It was approaching 2.30 in the afternoon, their first lunch breaker, he realised our first lunch breaker, she laughed. Not that she had any desire to laugh, but his presence made her feel so weak that she was close to tears at any moment. She considered leaving, though she had only arrived at two. But he went on cheerfully, icebreaker, pacemaker, salt shaker, but she could only think of the word sofa, which did not end in cur. There he sat, silently inviting her to say a word, with the same rhyme, but all that floated back to him was a faint hum, which had begun again to issue from the walls and furniture of the house. He had heard the sound before while sitting on the sofa, smoking an old cigarette and waiting after her. After a pause, he turned to her and said, lawmaker, note-taker, code-breaker, as she stayed quiet, silently searching for a word to offer him. That was perfect. Thank you very much. And again, I just am astonished by the translation. I was just wondering how that had worked or was it written, was it written in English? No, this one was written in Arabic. And actually, when I approached Adenia, she said to me, I have a piece which is very personal, but I, it was impossible to translate. Nobody in the yeah. world will be yeah. able to translate this bit because of this line rhyming of the curse yeah. uh, and how that worked in Arabic. And then she said, ah, I know, I think... Yasmin can do it. Yasmin's seal. Mm. And Yasmin came back with this extraordinary piece. And it, yeah, she, she found a way of doing it. So, yeah, it's a good piece to show that off. <laughs> it is phenomenal achievement to, to translate sound and rhyme as well as meaning. Um, hats off to Yasmin. <laughs> and Selma Dabag, thank you very much. Thank you, Lydia. It's been a pleasure. Selma's latest book, We Wrote in Symbols, Love and Lust by Arab Women Writers is published by Saki Books and available at all good bookshops. You can follow her on Twitter at Selma Dabak. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com.